Here we go. <laughs> Great intro. Yeah. Right on cue. Great timing, dog. This is the Meteor Club Podcast, a weekly roundtable discussion about all things Meteor. Welcome to the Meteor Club Podcast. I am your host, uh, Josh Owens. Uh, my co-host, Ben Strahan, could not make it this week. He's uh, quitting a job and going to work for Paul now, so apparently they're <laughs> celebrating with lunch and alcohol and all that kind of stuff at his old job. Uh, and so this week we've got uh, three special guests. Um, so I'm going to go clockwise from the way that I see them. Uh, Sam, welcome to the show. Why don't you tell people who you are and what you do? Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Sam. I'm a founder at Zolvio. Uh, we do test automation and mainly around Meteor. And uh, I'm also part of the uh, Core Velocity team. Nice. All right. And then uh, Jeremy, you're next. Uh, my name is Jeremy Shimko. I'm a um, freelance developer uh, in uh, Connecticut, and uh, I do a combination of uh, media development and uh, DevOps stuff, mostly for, uh, for the corporate space. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. We'll get into that. All right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And then uh, Paul. Hi. So I'm Paul Dowman, and I'm the founder of OK Growth. We build web and mobile apps for clients using Meteor. Nice. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, and you just you you started uh, Meteor interviews too recently. So I did. If uh, you guys haven't heard that, you should go check it out. Meteorinterviews.com. Thanks. We're up to five episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I said like you put one out today, and now I gotta go like jog <laughs> around the block so I can listen to it. <laughs> And that's the only time I listen to podcasts because I know I have a commute, right? I don't, I guess we're all in that boat, right? <laughs> yep. Kind of funny. Yeah. All right. Uh, so the topic this week is going to be, um, we're going to try the, the two topics again. I thought the first one would be interesting because all of us are doing client work. So I thought I'd talk, we, we could talk a little bit about, um, you know, our feelings around convincing clients to use Meteor or like, where are you finding existing Meteor clients, that kind of thing. Um, are you finding Meteor to work better or worse with, you know, um, working with clients that, you know, just that general kind of thought space there. And then uh, the second half, we'll talk about building a testing culture uh, in Meteor, right? Like how do we convince people to actually write tests for their code and that it's worth the time and you know, that kind of thing. So yeah, let's, let's get into it. Uh, I'm actually going to ask, um, Paul, like, you know, how many, how many clients do you guys have right now? Can you talk about that? Yeah, we, we generally at, at the moment we work for about two projects at a time We're we're still pretty small. And so, we, you know, we might slowly expand that, but, uh, I think that's, you know, it's pretty comfortable. We can all, we can all know what's going on with everything. And, and we, we work like we don't, we don't switch between them. So for us, it has to be somebody, somebody has to be dedicated on it for, or two people typically dedicated on a project for, for, uh, you know, at least, at least a week at a time, but usually in, in like chunks of weeks. Hmm. Interesting. So we've been doing media for all new projects since for about a year and a half now. Hmm. And, um, and it's been it's been a great switch actually. So we we switched from Rails, and we we always look for the productive 
type of, of tools. So things that you can get more work done faster. Um, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why we switched to Meteor was because we were, we were you know, happily using Rails a few years ago, but then starting to feel like we weren't building the kind of things that, or actually I should say we, were, we started trying to build things that, uh, that had way more client side stuff. We started using Angular, um, actually tried at Ember for a little bit, even a couple of years ago, but um, did a couple of projects with Angular and threw some real time into the mix even, and it just was too much work. So kept an eye on Meteor through that whole time and then started with it as soon as we could. Hmm. Interesting. What about you, Jeremy? Yeah, that, that's funny. You, you mentioned the real time thing. That was, that was, I think this is probably the case for a lot of people. There's a combination of two things the the looking for something that can allow you to be more productive in a shorter period of time. That's obviously a huge pitch for anybody doing this kind of work. Um, but there was, uh, what, what brought me to that was, um, yeah, I needed something for real time too. Uh, and, uh, any of the other, you know, any of the other implementations you could possibly do is almost guaranteed to be more steps, um, at least at this point in history. And, uh, yeah, and that's, that's what first got me there. And, and, you know, starting from having never seen Meteor to building something reasonable with it was such a surprisingly short period of time that was, it wasn't long before I was, I was pretty committed to, to doing most things with that. So, so I have a pretty similar beginning there. Yeah. Interesting. How about you, Sam? Yeah, I think it's about the real time for me as well. That's how it kind of started out. Um, cause I was building my own, um, real time app and I was doing it with, um, socket IO and, um, Amazon, the DB and uh, like the dynamo DB and that kind of thing. And a meteor came along and it did all these things in a nice big, in a nice all in one sort of downloadable package. It was like, this is great. That's how I got into it. And then, uh, um, yeah, in using it at a, at a, at a client's place, um, I found that, um, you know, there was, there were, we had two guys and we needed to do a dashboard and we need to do that in like a period of six weeks. And I said, just give me, give me a bit of space to work alone with, you know, an isolated repo and these two guys. And, you know, every single week they were seeing, um, you know, new, like two or three new additions to the, to the dashboard. So yeah, it's the, the speed of building things was, is obviously the, the other, the other super attractive thing. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I look back, so I give the the Why Meteor talk, and one of the slides I have in there is of Railscast, and that's really where I heard about Meteor first. And like Ryan Bates did this comparison between Ember and Angular and Backbone and Meteor, and Meteor was the oddball, right? Because it, it had like the back end and everything, and so it really wasn't Rails. Um, and, uh, you know, he built... Each, he built the same like to-do app in each framework and then put it out there. And, you know, for Backbone, Angular, and Ember, it was two like 14, 15-minute videos. But then Meteor was one 15-minute video. And I was like, huh, that's like really, really saying something. Like that's a 50% speed increase maybe. Um, yeah. and, and that's so without that, real time too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so that kind of made me perk up. And then, you know, it just happened at the the right time. Like I uh, was talking to the guys at Differential and, you know, I, I pointed all this out to them and they're like, well, you know, we're greenfielding a lot of applications. We're planning to work with brand new startups. You know, anything we can do to reduce the 
overall development costs I think could be beneficial to those clients. And so that was kind of the direction that things headed. So. Yeah, it's a pretty easy business case to make, you know, you can do cooler stuff in significantly less time. It's uh, even if there were headaches to deal with, it's still pretty attractive. And, and there were, there were, uh, to, to be fair, there were some headaches to deal with about a year ago, but mm. uh, you know, there, there were things changing fast enough that you, you couldn't, you couldn't guarantee that your app was going to work in two or three months, but you know, that, that's kind of a, kind of a history thing at this point, but, but yeah, even so it was, it was still, it was still a pretty, a pretty easy sell for me, even, even with those things considered. Yeah. Yeah. What about, I mean, what, what do you guys think? Like, are you finding, how are you finding it to, to sell clients on Meteor? Like, do they come to you and say, I have an idea, I want to build it. Or, you know, are they coming to you saying like, you know, we want you to build this a Meteor or like what, I guess over history, like over time, what are you seeing there and what are you seeing now? You know, For us, we, we have really two different types of clients and it, it never used to be that people came to us looking for Meteor. Now, in, in the last six months, they do. Um, so that's kind of a, that's a different thing. But for, for clients looking just to build a product, we don't sell them on Meteor. And like we, even when we first got started on it, we, we, don't, we don't try to convince them that Meteor is the right thing. We look at the project and we say, would it be the right thing? And if it, if it wouldn't be, then we probably don't want to do the project and we'll, we'll tell them that and try to recommend somebody that could do it for them. Mm. Um, but the other type of work that we do get is people who are specifically looking for us to do meteor consulting type work now. So help out somehow with a project that, that, that already exists. And occasionally people were, were I think starting to get the founders or people that are, are going to launch a product that have heard that Meteor might be a good choice for them. And so they, they reach out to us about that. Hmm. I'm seeing it a lot more active in like uh, newcomers, like, you know, startups and people who are, you know, connected to the, to the, to the modern world, maybe. <laughs> um, but like, you know, with, with seeing it in the enterprise, for example, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of fear of, you know, implementing something new and something that's so young. And so, you know, like they'll say, oh yeah, we can use Meteor on this tiny little project over here that, that doesn't cost very much and is very low risk. But, you know, for the other projects that cost us a lot of money uh, to get a feature out, we don't want to put something there that's going to increase the speed because, you know, it's, it's the risk factor. And, you know, I guess, I guess it's not, it's not without reason that you know, people can be, Oh, he muted. He Looks muted. like you muted yourself there. Yeah. <laughs> Did you hit some hockey? <laughs> I have no idea. I didn't hear anything. <laughs> um, so I don't know where did, where did I get to. Uh, I'll, I'll just start. I'll start from where I was. Um, so yeah, I'm finding the enterprise. There's a lot of fear around um, um, installing Meteor in the mix, and you know I think that fear is not is is reasonable if if it's you know, if it's to replace the entire system. But I think one way that you can get the uh, Meteor into the mix in, in larger organizations is by replacing one part of their site at a time and showing them that you can add features much quicker to that part of the site. So, for example, you might have a map or one, sec you know, one vertical within the site. And then you could say, we'll do some A-B testing within there. And if you come in with a solid plan and you say, this is how we're going to make you deliver features faster – then that's a great selling point for any CTO or any, you know, anyone who's in the decision-making seat. 
That's yeah. my experience anyway. This is something that happened with when I was working with Audi. Hmm. Yeah, so I find to me like a lot of the pushback I get is more around like, you know, will it scale? <laughs> and I don't know, like I mean, chances are, it, uh, I know I said this in a previous episode, like chances are it's not going to matter, right? If you're a startup just getting started, someone is already there. They're already there scaling at a level that's going to take you a while to hit and they're going to be even beyond you, right? And so even if their product dies off in a year, they've probably blazed a, a trail far, far in front of you and you'll be at a point, like when you hit that point where they either grew even bigger or died off, like you're going to be able to, you know, break apart your Meteor app in a smart way and start scaling the pieces that matter. Um, yeah, I agree with you about scaling, Josh, for, for sure. And you've said this a lot, but like the most, the biggest risk in software is that you're building the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. So make sure you just have the right tools and processes that you can just iterate more quickly till you get to the right thing. Yeah. I feel like a lot of this is really just perception problems, right? Like they chose Mongo and Mongo has this like, you know, Rafflecopter web scale funniness attached to it where people think it can't handle growing or whatever. And that's just not the case anymore. Like they've, they've been building better and smarter things over there with, I mean, 3.0 looks highly, highly attractive. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Like, how do we, how do we fix that? I think somebody needs to just create a reasonable app and I, by reasonable app, I mean something that's bona fide, not a to-do list, you know, like something that's actually like that does something, you know, and then do some serious performance tests on it. Show some like Kadira reports, show some, C, show some like CPUs and all that sort of jazz and show that this is how many we can handle. And this is the kind of, this is the scientific test we did. And if you can show something that's taking, that can just scale as you throw more instances at it, then that's, I think that's proof enough. Yeah. It's just no one's done that yet because it takes time. Right? Yeah. It takes time and, and effort. It's a, it's a large piece. And, yeah. and make, making the implementation of that something that's repeatable and accessible to people who aren't IT geniuses is, is not a trivial task. Yeah. It's, um, you know, the, the advice out there on, on scaling Meteor is, um, is sparse to begin with, but, but even the good stuff that's out there is, is not very approachable for people that are new to a lot of those topics. And it can be a lot, of, <laughs> a lot easier than, than it is. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think there's some work to do to, to make that, um, you know, I don't know if standardizing is the right thing, but right word to use, but, but something that's a, a, a widely accepted best practice, you know? Um, is that yeah. the pushback you guys generally get from clients or potential clients? Like when they're talking about meteor or is it other things? Honestly, no, not for me. No. Uh, usually they're, they're not really worrying about scaling and and that also may be because i i don't tend to throw meteor into a new conversation like right away like somebody doesn't come to me and say oh i want to build this thing and i say awesome we're going to use meteor and they say whoa whoa what's that is it going to scale no i, I just i make sure like our our first conversations are just about what, what do you want to build and we, we don't really even talk technology right away and if we are then it's because they probably came to us looking for something specifically about Meteor. Yeah, that's interesting because I know at Differential, like even at some point, Meteor does come into the conversation and uh, it was always like, like uh, I spent a weekend just writing a page 
talking about like why meteor, like why it makes sense for your business and that kind of thing. And I mean, it was always an apprehension, right? So like, uh, I remember fantasy hub coming in and saying like, well, you know, we're hesitant about meteor because of these reasons. And some of them were around scaling and some of them were around like hiring people, you know, because, uh, I think going to a dev shop, like it's not a long-term idea to like hire them forever. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, we, we do mention it. It's just not something we just don't really focus on it. Yeah. And you're right. People do do sometimes ask about it. Uh, and I would say the more common question would be, uh, around maintenance afterwards. So like, what can I, can I find people to work on that? Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. That's that seems to be pretty common. Uh, I've had a lot of people. Uh, a lot of the work I get is is specifically because somebody referred me, because not everybody knows a long list of meteor developers, and and one of the biggest issues I run into is exactly that. Is okay, so so I'm done now. Who in your company is actually going to do you know maintain what I just you know because people don't want to be tied to a vendor and or at least feel like they are even if that's not necessarily the reality. There are plenty of people out there that can do this work. People don't know a long list of them yet. So um, so so that's been that's been especially around deployment too. A lot of you know a lot of times I've been hired by other people that have developers but know nothing about you know either building media apps or, or maintaining and deploying them and all of that. And, uh, haven't found a great solution for that, for that kind of, for that kind of handoff, um, you know, for, for situations where they don't really, they're not looking for an ongoing relationship like that, where they just, they just want it built and walk away with it. Yeah. Another question I hear actually is about, um, uh, SEO and, you know, it's a single page app and, you know, there's not a lot of education around like, you know, packages like Spiderable and caching, and there's not a lot of material actually out there on that. So, you know, somebody who's in marketing or somebody who's done an app and they've got to make sure that Google's up, you know, up in the ranks and the page speed and all that. And, <clears throat> and, you know, I think that was a reservation, at least for me, when I was trying to sell it to a previous startup that I worked at and then also at an advertising agency. And, you know, those are the questions I was hearing, um, you know, how do we do SEO? How does it, uh, how does it work with like, cause this is yeah, the, the single page app thing. Now Google has been doing a lot of work with uh, actually doing like pop, um, rendering pages on their side now with phantom JS or whatever they're doing to, to render it. So that's getting better, but I feel like SEO in a way is holding back the web anyway. Right. And that's, that's a, that's a broken web thing rather than a meteor problem. But then how does meteor fit into that? I think is one of the questions that, um, that I do here as well. Yeah. I mean, and, I think it's an important question, right? Because I, I look at all the traffic I get to my blog and over the last month, uh, 50%, 51% of my traffic came in through Google. And so that's not, that's not tiny. And, uh, you know, I, I hear people say interesting things like, Oh, you should be on Snapchat. Cause that's where, you know, all the people are going to be shifting or, you know, advertise on Facebook or be on Twitter. But honestly, like as hard as I work at, at getting people through, those channels like Google's still it right like my web content that I write is still king and that's where my top traffic source is and where my conversions come from and I think that's an important thing for anyone that's building a web app so it is a fair question I guess <laughs> yeah yeah right and honestly I think a lot more work could be done in that area like the standard spiderable package is rubbish 
<laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it works at least, right? But it's like, okay, this is going to change in some point in the future. And I know, I know how busy the MDG are. And then there's a bunch of other packages on there. Like someone's come along and said, okay, well, here's, this is broken. We'll do a cached version of it. And then something goes wrong with that package. Um, and then there's no clear tutorial on how to create like a CDN on top of Spiderable because you are penalized heavily for slow um, slow page loads by Google. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's interesting because I did, someone released a uh, Spiderable 2, I think they called it, something along those lines, and they ripped out Phantom and put Zombie in, in its place. And you know, that was kind of interesting. But I'm not sure that, that that really solves the main problem, which is that things are not pre-rendered and cached before you, before the, the bot hits it. So still, yeah. it'd still take, it'd still take you like half a second or a second, which is, you know, 500,000 milliseconds delay on the server on top of whatever other things are going on is that's a problem for SEO. Yeah. yeah it'd be great if the response so, was done before that amount of time, never mind having to wait that amount of time. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so I mean, it, it it probably wouldn't be hard. I mean, okay, so you could use something like prerender.io, which I think is probably the best solution. Um, but it also wouldn't be hard to write a package, maybe using Redis, maybe just using Mongo to like um, to on a regular schedule to refresh certain pages or all the pages, or you know, define some rules about how that works. Spiderable cron. <laughs> yeah, like pre prefetching Spiderable. Yeah, so what, what, because it doesn't have to be fresh up to the minute or the hour. Like, even even something from the same day. Of course, that gets harder the more pages you have. So if you've got a lot of content on your site, then that becomes harder to do. But maybe you just have something that's regularly regularly crawling your your it's the app is regularly crawling itself, and uh, and putting that through Phantom JS or whatever. Yeah. Did you say you're going to have that ready for us for next week? <laughs> it's, it's a good idea. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's been said on a podcast, so now someone's going to make it true. Yeah, it's true. I now. hope so. Yeah. Well, you could run something like that like a, as a microservice, I suppose. I mean, it starts nice. to complicate it a little bit more, but you could, you could run that from another spot and communicate via DDP, I guess. That's, that could be interesting, too. Like hook an iron router, and you could see everyone's routes and pull them in. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> by next week <laughs> very interesting yeah so i want to get back to something we were saying before we were talking a little bit about like handing off a project right and for me i don't know maybe maybe i'm a bad freelance developer or bad at like being a project manager i don't know but i've never had a clean exit on a client project it's always hard to figure out when it's going to end and when you're going to be done. And I think software is like a living, breathing thing. Um, so no matter what, like even when you're done, stuff's going to still happen, like Jeremy said. And so how do you, I, I guess I'm curious to hear like how you guys handle that stuff. Make sure you don't run out of money. <laughs> you know? um, but I, I think that's a problem that's not unique to Meteor. Um, yeah. You know, any anywhere you go and you have a handover, like the handover is just a, a pain no matter how you look at it. And you know the 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 best times it works is when you are sort of in sourced with another team and you know you're working with them and like there's there's the the handover is easier because it's more of a I'll continue this as opposed to handover. But you're never going to be able to hand over something. 
you know, how many times have you been in a workplace and then at the end it's your last day and they're like, okay, great. And they save all the like handover into the last three days in which you've got to sit down and do a, like a Vulcan mind meld with someone, right? <laughs> and it, it's just not going to happen, right? You, it doesn't work. <laughs> so I think, I think the way to handle it is to, to, to make sure that from the start you've got some, you know, somebody that you're, that's walking with you the entire path. Because I, I do think it's a lot more about like to get a good handover where you can maintain something properly, you have to have owned it at some point for some time. You know, and I think yeah. that's that's the way to that's the way to do it. Have have I done it? Um, only <laughs> only when I was insourcing with someone. Yeah, that, that that's kind of uh, it's mo- most of the time they uh, they don't have. They don't have meteor familiar people within the walls. And that, that tends to be why I was involved in the first place. Um, or they just don't have developers at all. But, um, but yeah, I, I, usually, I usually end up with some kind of flexible, you know, I'm, I'm available as needed kind of thing for the stuff that isn't, you know, it isn't necessarily ongoing work, but it's just not practical to have somebody be a stand-in replacement for me. It's uh, that, that seems to be my, my most common outcome there is, is just, of you know, an, an on-call version of, of, uh, for double your uh, normal rate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it depends on if the server's down, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, no, it, it's, and that, I mean, I guess that kind of works. That's they're, they're not paying for somebody that they're not using and, you know, and I'm getting paid for my time. So it's, it's not, it's not necessarily a terrible way to go. Uh, and it, it, it keeps them from having to worry about, you know, the, the learning overhead, um, and it has somebody, it, it involves a certain amount of trust. They, they have to personally trust you, but, um, but that's, that's kind of the truth about working with anybody really. So, so that works. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. Different approaches there. Um, the other thing that I've been finding interesting is, uh, you know, you guys talked about it from the side of like, clients worry can they hire people i've actually been getting a lot of email responses from my mailing list and people are like you know should i learn meteor can i find jobs for it you know and i know there's there's plenty of people out there that you know can pick up meteor it's not a hard framework to learn and javascript is pretty uh pretty widespread at this point so you know i i don't know i think uh I think we need like a really strong marketplace. Uh, maybe it's WeWork Meteor, maybe it's uh, Meteor Chef Job Board. I don't know, but something definitely needs to to flip and get at least more freelancers interested in the in the job market. Well, at the very least, you can't possibly go wrong getting proficient at JavaScript. There, there are just, even if Meteor doesn't pan out for you, <laughs> you're, yeah. you're not going to be at a total loss learning JavaScript properly. So, so that's, um, that, that kind of at least answers that part when, when people ask that. Um, that's not a waste of time for sure. Yeah. Also, to, to anybody who's wondering that, I, I think that, so I've, I've over the last year I've I've kept an eye on various sources of of job postings and things just out of curiosity to see how just to kind of get an idea for myself of how the media uh, community is doing and I've seen a steady increase in job postings. Sure, yeah, that would not surprise me because honestly, like I'm seeing anywhere between twenty five and thirty five percent growth month over month on crater traffic, which I think is another measurement of that. So. Yeah. 
Huh. Yeah. Yeah. The 1.0 the release. And then obviously now the Windows stuff, um, I think that probably goes a long way for, for people feeling comfortable about it. Yeah. yeah the no. 1.0, sorry, Sam, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Well, the 1.0 release was a huge inflection point. And mm-hmm. yeah, I would, I would not be surprised to see the same again with Windows, like you said. Sure. Yeah, and with you know the sequel, the sequel to Meteor being sequel, um, you know, with with that coming up, I think that's that's what's going to give people a lot more kind of okay. Or this, even though I may not end up using the sequel aspect of it, or even it might be just like a, a a stepping stone to get to the point where I need, you know, to the to the good reactive uh, setup, it still would make a lot of people feel better. I think. It's, Absolutely. Yeah. All right, but um, in terms of in terms of creating creating jobs and that kind of thing, I think there's as soon as as soon as like one, you know, a startup that becomes like really big, like beyond, you know, not necessarily Facebook and Google style, but something that's significant, you know, like there's a lot of startups with ten, twenty, fifty, maybe people. I think I mean I, I know one that's like twenty five, and that's about the sizes that I see. But as soon as you see something that's like really really big and you know, driving, driving some of the um, practices behind Meteor and then also having like lots of jobs and having some buzz around it. Because at the moment, all the buzz comes from the communities and comes from Meteor themselves. Um, and, you know, like how much buzz are we really seeing from companies and showing how cool their technology is because it's built on Meteor? I think that would drive, you know, like you've got Facebook and with React and that's, you know, within two seconds, like that's famous, you know, and there's a lot of, there's, I'm not sure if there's lots of jobs that people want to do yet in React, but it, it just starts creating the buzz from, you know, like for the industry is what I'm saying. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Wanted to make sure I heard him. Give me an extra honk there. All right. Uh, let's switch gears now. Uh, let's start talking about testing, why people should test and how we convince them they should test. <laughs> I'm going to start with Sam. <laughs> Why? Because you wrote a book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how do you make a testing culture? I think for me, it was when one person asked a question on, uh, they wanted to work on the Markdown blog and uh, on uh, Zolvio. And the guy came in and he goes, I really like this package. Uh, I want to get involved. Where are the tests? <laughs> And he says, I come from a Rails background where everything's in testing and I'm realizing that actually in this, in the Meteor world, it's not, you know, and it was like, that's, that's very true. You know, in the Java world, it is a, there is a big testing culture. I mean, it's kind of half, half in Rails. It was really high because you had this solution, you know, that came with the package. It was like the way to develop, right? I mean, you know, better than me. So it was just like the, you know, whether people agreed with that solution or not, it was, you got like, it was a lot of aspect, right? That was deeply, deeply integrated. Uh, I wouldn't say it was deeply integrated, um, okay. but I think it was widely adopted. Is maybe right. a better better way to say it. Yeah, and I think it was there was like it was lucky as well because our spec came at a time when tests were very unreadable, and then it came over and did like all this very highly readable stuff. And interestingly, it later became Cucumber. Um, so I think you know in in a framework where you can you can it's not just about the programming. I think the culture is about you know like agility and you know like the agile movement of writing things with tests and then a framework that matches it. That's the thing that creates a testing culture. It's the combination of, of, um, you know, the, the way the ecosystem builds apps as well as the tools available. Um, you know, like, so the, the, the methodology, I mean, sorry, the, by the way, so like, um, 
you know, agile was big. And now, now, I mean, I've got, I've got my finger on BDD. Um, personally, I've got a huge interest in behavior driven development. And in fact, my whole startup is about behavior driven development. Um, and so if I was to say how we can maybe start bringing Meteor into the mix is by showing how packages can be driven through BDD more from like the thought leaders point of view. And then that would perhaps travel down to it becoming more of a culture. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it just has to be that that's how you do it. And it just has to be generally accepted. And, and your, your comment about Rails is very true. It was integrated right in the framework. It was something that, uh, that you know, if you, I think if you generate a new Rails app, you've got, you've got tests generated. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see that with the Meteor sample apps. I'd like to see that uh, with the docs. Have it, have it all there. This is just the way you do it. Yeah, that's a good point. The, the sample apps would be a great opportunity to, to put some good examples in there. So it's interesting. We've been talking to the MDG about that, like the Velocity team, um, and they're very open to it. Um, the, the place not to do it is the place that we've been focusing on so far, which is the leaderboard app. <laughs> and the leaderboard is very special to the Meteor um, framework because it's, you know, it's the thing that really shows off reactivity and they've got a lot of tests internally around it. Um, and we've spoken about doing it to the to-do app uh, to start with, and they'd be quite happy having like a bunch of tests to accompany it, or even for, for us to add to the command line to say like Meteor uh, dash dash create, and then you do an example that like with tests or something like that. So they're open to it. Um, it's not there yet. Why why have it separate though? I mean, I I would argue that every that everything every time you do create with an example then it should just have tests there. Yeah, I think if the it MDG... should be an option. If the MDG owned Velocity or if they were responsible for the testing solution, we could probably see that. But now it's more of a... Like, I, I, I would argue the exact same thing. It should be that way, yes. Um, I, I can't see that happening in the immediate future, but it's something that could happen in the medium term, I think. Hmm. You know, I have another comment about, uh, you know, a testing culture versus not. And I think... There's, there's sort of, um, there are type of apps where, or I say there's a size of apps where maybe it's a little bit of extra work, uh, say, say like a one month project, like you can get away without testing and, and maybe it's a bit of extra work to, to do the tests. But then if your one month project is successful, then it becomes a two month project and then a three month project. And then things start to slow down and you start to, and in fact, more importantly to you as a developer, it's, it's not that necessarily so much even that the project is slowing down is that you start to not feel good. Mm -hmm. And so I really don't like that feeling of, Oh, that, that's ugly. I would like to change that. Oh wait, no, that'll probably break something. I'll just, let me just continue on with what I'm doing and pretend that that never, that I never saw that. Right. I don't like that. I like to feel that I can, that I can refactor stuff with confidence and I don't like to be told, uh, that either that I broke something, I don't like to hear that from a client. Yeah. And, and I just don't like the feeling that, you know, so if there are not tests in place, it's, it's really hard to, to refactor when you, when you should. Yeah. And I would it's agree. To, it's, a good, it's a good feeling just to be able to go in and refactor anything you like. Yeah. I would agree with that. I mean, I, I feel like probably that one of the worst calls you get is right after you deploy something and your client's like, Hey, you just broke it. Can you fix it? You know, and you, you feel like the idiot because you spent all this time writing this code and 
it turns out like, oh, you know, you refactored this bit of code over here so you could accomplish what you need to accomplish. But surprise, you broke feature, you know, A, you wrote two weeks ago and you didn't even think about testing it because, you know, you weren't, you weren't really touching it in a sense. Um, but it turns out you were. And um, yeah, I think that's, that's a, a great reason to write some tests. And I would agree with you. For me, it feels like um, if you're going to go like the click test QA route, right, which is, you know, you call your client up and say, hey, we deployed the staging. You should check it out. And, you know, we're going to hammer at it too and make sure it works. And I feel like that solution tends to fall down somewhere around week seven or eight in the development process. And your app just gets too large for you to remember all the pieces. And um, that would always be the point where I'd start to be like, oh, I wish I had tests here, you know, I would yep. agree with that. And you could always start putting them in, right? So put them in for the thing that you're, that you're doing. And if you're touching something, put in tests for it before you refactor it. Yeah, I would agree with that. And the other interesting thing is like Avi um, was on last week and I know I've had some side conversations with him and I know he's had some conversations with Sam as well. Like, you know, I've got an application. It's at this point fairly large. Like it's kind of funny, like Sam and I were talking to Avi and then Paul, you, you actually work on WorkPop too. So Sorry. Um, like I'm guessing that's a fairly large app, right? At this point. Very. Yeah. So, I mean, like where, where does one, get started with kind of breaking that down and getting the tests in place. Yeah, I think for, well, for any legacy app, you could start doing it. I mean, the first step is just, just having a rigorous culture around manually testing. So, I mean, that's, that's good. A lot of people are successful with that and, and, you know, not to speak too much about WorkPop, but they do a great job with that. Um, but then there, there's a, actually, there's even a, there's a book that's been written about how to, put tests into a legacy app. Not, not that, not that like a, a one-year-old media app is, is necessarily considered a legacy app at this point, because it's, you know, that's all code that's very fresh in everyone's mind. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, the, I think even the oldest media app that's in existence right now, you can, you can still start putting tests into it. Yeah. There's a, there's a huge link between the specification of a system and the tests themselves, right? I mean, they are, they are the same thing. They should be the same thing, but in a lot of places they're seen as quite distinct things. So if you look at the whole product development life cycle, it starts off, you know, somewhere with an idea and then the idea becomes some specification. It goes through a build process. And then at the end, you've got the testing that's tacked on before it goes to production. So the testing uh, is verifying that whatever was done in the build stage was what was specified up front, right? And so the specifications and the testing are intrinsically linked. Um, but the, the way that manual testing and even, even automated testing these days, the way that happens is disconnected from the in, in original intent. Um, and if it is connected to the original intent, it's done through communication and through translation of features, which are written, say, in like a use case document or a requirements document. And then that's translated through understanding into tests. And that's if you're lucky, if, you've got, if a place is doing like, has got a good testing strategy. And so, um, you know, this is, this is actually the problem I'm trying to solve with, with my startup and is the exact problem of um, this, that Cucumber has solved through something called executable specifications. Um, so in terms of, to, to answer your question, uh, uh, Josh, how do you go from an existing system that doesn't have testing? I would say the first thing is to start thinking about your existing specifications. Where are they? Because they probably don't exist, right? Um, they were out of date the minute that you developed them because 
you know, the next development that came in would put that original requirements document out of date. And so the way to do that, I think, is to put in more tooling like whether it's Cucumber or whether it's RSpec or whatever it is, something that creates um, testing around the original intent that goes hand in hand with the code development. And there are the, te- there are the um, tools to do that now. Cucumber obviously is one of them and I'm the maintainer of that. So that's the disclaimer. Um, but this is the reason I love it so much for these reasons. And, um, and the way to do that then is to say, all right, where are my riskiest areas of my website? Second question, um, where am I spending most of my QA time? What can I automate in order to save myself QA time? Um, and then, you know, like what's my mission critical business systems and then specify those in specifications, automate those. And then for future, any changes that you want, then you add the changes to the specifications and let the, let the change trickle down through the build process. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So to sum up, what I tell people is find that happy path or find that golden path and use that for testing, right? Like figure out what's going to make the CEO or CTO look bad when they're in their, their money pitch meeting and crap breaks that that's the stuff you want to test first. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Happy path first. Absolutely agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then after that, maybe you have a path that's some other user role that you don't, yourself tend to exercise when you're playing around with the app, things like that. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So it's like an elephant, just one bite at a time. Yeah. Yeah. And and, you know, maybe, um, you know, like, like what Sam said about cucumber, maybe the next time you write a specification, if you're, if you're doing that or the next time you're uh, defining a feature before doing it, try writing it in cucumber, even if you're not yet using it or something similar. And then you, maybe you're uh, maybe you're a step closer to, to using Cucumber for actual, actually defining your tests. All right. So I did a poll real quick before we started this. And I'm kind of curious to hear from Jeremy here too, because um, like Paul and I came from Rails and we did testing and Sam came from Java. And obviously like he's done quite a bit of testing as well. Um, but Jeremy, you said you came from a DevOps background and, and started getting into Meteor. Uh, and you really haven't done much uh, previously in testing. So like, are you testing now? And if not, like what causes you to hesitate? Uh, so yeah, no, I, I, I recently started trying to force myself because that, that's really the only way to do it is, is to just do it. And, and like, I, I think that's a great suggestion of even if you are not necessarily using them right now, just start chipping away at it uh, because it only gets harder the further away from, from the original writing of the code you get. <laughs> um, but uh but yeah, you know, I, I think I think the biggest hurdle for, for for probably a lot of people that aren't currently doing it is it's it, it kind of almost feels like the overhead of having to you know learn another language is maybe another a good example. Um, you know, it just you know, I mean, which is obviously one of the attractions to Meteor is you get the you get to play with JavaScript all the time. Um, you know, and, and I, I think that's that's probably probably one of the most common <clears throat> setbacks for most people is it feels like, well, I got to spend all this time to get proficient at that. And, you know, that's 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 making me get things done in, you know, a third of the amount or, you know, three times the amount of time. Um, but um, but yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm trying to chip away at that now. I'm I'm ridiculously obsessed with automation which which that came from the devops background but um so so i automate lots of stuff so it's repeatable and and when it doesn't work i fix the part that that doesn't work and and continue to automate that in the future but um but that's not really the quite the same as as testing the app functionality 
Um, but it's for the same reasons. It's, it's so that I can count on like if this worked before in all likelihood it will work in the future. And, uh, and uh, yep. yeah, yeah testing is automating the, the crappy QA work. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and, and, and you're right. There's the, the, the manual testing approach, which is very much been, been uh, a part of my, my history leading up to uh, doing more testing. Uh, it's, just, it's just not, um, it's not efficient. It's not, it's not practical. And, and there's no way you're going to think to test everything. There's always some obscure profile page that you didn't think about. And, uh, you know, some, some kind of horrible, uh, horrible bug there that could be really well hidden because of this one deep page you don't go to, or, you know, one particular method you don't call. Uh, so, so it's really, it's really difficult to, uh, to do that manually. It's just, it's not practical. It's not, it's not a good, you could spend that same amount of time teaching yourself testing <laughs> yeah. and, and then not have to lose that time every time in the future. So yep. it sounds reasonable and practical, but that still doesn't, that still doesn't convert a lot of people very fast, but, huh. but it, it is the more efficient way to go in the long run. <laughs> so you're saying testing makes you a 10 X programmer, huh? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that is exactly it. Yep. Nice. Absolutely. It, yeah. it guarantees you lots of jobs. <laughs> nice. so with the if if testing was then super easy for you then jeremy would that be would that be like a you know like if you could just come in and go here's a very fluent way to write tests and it's super quick and here's all the tooling and everything else then would that make it less of a barrier yes i think if i felt like i could learn it rather quickly i mean i have no problem reading technical books cover to cover to learn something i need to learn you know any given topic and uh and i think a lot of people in in this uh, in this industry tend to learn that way they they you know have something they need to learn they get some super specialized book about that or a couple of them and and uh really dig in and uh you know they they're just um at least in the meteor space, other than other than your book, there really aren't a ton of resources out there on that. Um, and uh, and yeah, if if it were if it were something that you can you can learn an established best practice in a, in a reasonable amount of time, I think it would be a lot more approachable for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah I think I think I think one of the ways to like instill a instill a, a testing culture is to you know, have, like I was saying, have the tools and have a bunch of examples. And like my heart personally, as if, if in case you didn't hear it already, my heart set on Cucumber in that sense. And that, you know, like we've, we've been developing a tool called CubeMonkey and um, it's open source and it, what it does, it downloads Selenium, downloads like uh, Phantom, it wires it all up with Cucumber. And then all you got to do is just say like, here's my feature files, here's my step files. Monkey and it runs the and it runs the steps for you and it even ties up things like promises and what have you and chai as promise so you can say like browser dot go to this dot do this dot do that dot check for this dot end you know and then like it's it's just all hooked up into steps and um and yeah i think i think the more the more people can see something that's super easy like that at least to get started even if it's going to be slow even if the tests are going to take a while to run on ci or whatever i think if people can see those sorts of examples then you know that's I feel like that's the Kickstarter for a for a culture. And then as people go, wait a minute, this is too slow. What do I need to do now? And then that's what creates the culture is all those questions right. and all those, you know, sorts of things. But like this the starting point has just got to be super easy. You know, I remember in Java World actually, when I went to unit testing, the first time I ever tried unit testing, I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, what am I doing? What is how does this work? Like, what is a mock? And like, you know, just all there's so many different things you got to learn when you're first getting started with like a 
standard TDD sort of practice. But you know, anyone can understand like click, observe, check, go to the next page, go do this. You know, and then as you as you need to learn more, it's like how do I make this faster? Well, you have to kind of know about mocks. Oh, okay, all right, well let me do that. You know, and I think that's the way to drive it. Yeah, I would say you know maybe to me the early success of our spec was the fact that a lot of the people that did adopt it blogged about it. So maybe to like Jeremy's point about re- there's not a lot of resources, right? Like uh, I think I've got a blog post. There's another guy that's got a blog post, and Sam's got a book. And then there's like maybe some Google group stuff that might be interesting, but, and then I'm, I'm sure in the meteor cookbook, like Abigail has quite a bit of stuff in there as well. Um, but I mean, there's just not, there's not a ton. And so maybe it's just more of a commitment to blog and write about our adventures, like in this stuff, you know? Yep. Yeah, it's it's, yeah. it's not the sexiest topic in the world to write about, I think. But uh, but but I think you're right. If if people actually gave as many real world examples of stuff like that as they do for you know building whatever insert silly example here, um, you know that 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 could go a long way too. You know, another thing that helps is talking to the stakeholders, whoever they are, like your clients, your boss, whatever, and talking about what what testing gives you and you know, kind of set them up for, yeah, it might take a little bit of time to, to get this, to get this started or just, you know, like we, we could, we could maybe, um, if you're starting a new project, you could say, yeah, we could maybe like, uh, like cheat a little bit by not doing this and, and like have a slightly faster first month, but then it's going to, you know, we're going to be accruing a whole lot of technical debt and then it's going to slow down and our velocity of development could stay more constant and steady if we if we do this testing stuff. So our velocity could be better if we used velocity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. Speaking of which, speaking of which, this is probably a good time. Like 0.6.0 just came out actually of a couple of days ago, velocity. And also three other frameworks were up- updated. So just a little quick plug. It's super stable now, or at least it's so much more stable than it ever has been. Uh, and uh, the announcement's going to go out today. It works on Windows, which is a big one. Um, nice. In fact, all the framework, all three frameworks now work on. So th- three of the frameworks work on Windows, I think. Um, awesome. So anyway, yeah, just a tiny little tangent. No, not at all. We're talking about testing. <laughs> not really a tangent. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. I would say anyone that hasn't tried Velocity for a while, like, yeah, just just get it into a project, and like, just get familiar with it. Yeah, I would say for me, like, start with Cucumber or start with Jasmine, you know, just pick it up and drop it in and play with it until you get a green test that actually matters. Like, you know, I think the default Cucumber test is just checking for a page title. Like, maybe that's interesting enough. I don't know. But, you know, drive it a little further, maybe, you know, click a button and check something else. And I promise, I promise it is worth your time. I uh, I actually had, I was on a podcast, uh, How to Hold a Pencil, and it was about like learning to code and that kind of thing. And he said, if you could go back and tell like your, you know, 18 or 20 year old self, what's the most important thing you should focus on as you're kind of leveling up in your career, uh, what would that be? And, I, you know, my answer was <clears throat> tests aren't stupid. You know, they're they're worth the time and the effort. And, you know, I remember my early days thinking, this is retarded. Like, why am I spending time writing code that's going to, you know, test 
my other code. It just seems like I'm doing double work. But in the end, you know, I think it's it's definitely worth the benefit. And you know, and there's there's another thing I'll add is like with it can be fun. Like I mean, yeah, I might be a little bit biased on that on that side. But honestly, like the automation of tests and you know, like the grapple that you have and the the you know thinking up, it's a code base of its own. You know, you've got your main code base that does the app, and then you've got another entirely separate code base that tests the app, and that's got its own engineering problems and engineering challenges. You know, like so, it can be fun. I totally agree. It feels good to automate stuff, and it feels good to know that you're that you're saving yourself from like ha- having to find some weird bug. <laughs> saving yourself from yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. <laughs> Yeah, I would agree. Like, uh, even just today, like I did an apprentice video with, uh, Colby from the, the media club chat room. And, um, we were talking about like, I'm using simple casts and we're, um, for, for this podcast and we were building the website for this podcast today. And, um, you know, we're sitting there building an input interface, like a form, right. That allows you to put in all the data about the podcast and like a player link from simple cast and all this stuff. Cause I, I want it to look highly polished. And, uh, you know, Colby said, Hey, do they have an API? And I said, well, I, actually, I don't even think we need the API. I think the RSS feed will have everything we need. And so, you know, the goal would be to automate, you know, bringing in the RSS feed and consuming it and creating a new episode in the database. And then, you know, that, that website is self-maintaining. I only have to update one source of truth and, uh, that automation, I don't know. I got a little giddy when, when we started talking about that, because I I think it, it's going to be a really good thing in the long run, right? Like it'll save me maybe, I don't know, 15 minutes per episode, but over the long haul, like my two to three hours of coding this feature, I mean, you know, I'll gain it back. What's your favorite tool there, Josh? I am also biased and I would say Cucumber. I actually spent about a week trying to get Cucumber and Meteor to work together and got frustrated and gave up. Um, But yeah, I would would definitely say Cucumber is my favorite because it forces you to think in the mindset of the user. I think it's great that you can write a unit test or whatever, but your customer cannot query your database or get into your you know, your uh, collections and play around or your publications and play around with, you know, the data they don't have access to anyway. Um, And so to me, it's a little unrealistic to write a test that says, hey, click this button and, you know, put, you know, type this stuff here and hit this other button. And, you know, then, hey, did did stuff get inserted in the database? Because that's not the way your, your customer can do it. Instead, you have to think about, like what, what's that outcome on the screen for the customer? And we want to make sure we test for that. And uh, there's been specific examples for me where, you know, you'll have, uh, like I, on the Meteor Club website, when you go to sign up for the mailing list, uh, you'd hit the button and we'd make the API calls and everything would be good. And you had no idea anything happened because I didn't put anything on the screen. <laughs> I made sure the data got where it needed to be, but I didn't think about the customer in that situation, you know? Yeah, yeah, the end to end, the end to end is the all telling. As as much as it's the slowest, it's also the all telling one. Like I always used to say, I don't say anymore. I'll tell you why. But I always used to say that uh, you're as strong, you're as strong as your weakest link, and therefore you're as strong as your end to end tests, right? And so uh, I don't say it anymore because people get really like emotional about it. So it's it, you know it's it's like end to end tests are too slow, and we get into that conversation, and you know, 
but I still think you're as strong as your end-to-end tests. If you've got if you've got like your happy parts covered with end-to-end tests, you're you're in a pretty strong case. Um, you mentioned something. You just said that it was uh, you spent a week trying to get Cucumber and Meteor working together. Was that pre uh, dissolve your Cucumber package? Or yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was pre uh, pre Velocity actually. So okay. it was just like me trying to figure out how Cucumber JS worked more than anything, and then yeah. had to hook that into um, Meteor to, in a smart way that would make it work. And, and for, for listeners, you just have to say Meteor adds all of your Cucumber and it works now. Yes, much simpler. Yes. yes. Hmm. All right. Um, I don't know. That was, I don't know. That's a lot of everything I had question-wise. Does anyone want to add anything real quick? I think we solved it. <laughs> Again. Yeah. <laughs> green check mark. It's nothing left. Yep. Awesome. <laughs> All right. So next next week we'll just talk about world hunger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Uh yeah. So first I want to say thank you to listeners. We had an awesome launch day. Uh Ben launched it a little earlier than I thought we should, but uh it got out there and we've had like 500 listeners to the first episode, something like that. So that's been kind of awesome. And um, if you guys like, like hearing this stuff, we're going to, we're going to keep doing it every week. And these collection of people that are on the show every week are people that are in the media club chat room. And so if you're interested, you want to help like support this show and support the work that that's happening here. uh, You can go to patreon.com. It's a horrible word, hard to spell. P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Meteor Club and sign up there and you can get access to the Slack chat room, which is where we have deep, deep, awesome Meteor conversations all the time. (laughs) Or we talk about farts. I don't know. (laughs) So anyway, thanks. uh, Thanks for coming on the show, Paul and Jeremy and Sam. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. And we'll uh, talk, talk to everyone next week, all the listeners next week. This podcast has been a Meteor Club production. You can find out more information about Meteor Club at meteorjs.club. It's pretty easy to join the mailing list and stay in the loop. Again, that's meteorjs.club. <laughs>